So let's open our Bibles to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, if you haven't already. Uh, we often stand in, in our church services, just in honor of God's words. So I invite you to stand with me as we read uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You may be seated. We trust that the Lord will bless us as we study his word this morning. Let me pray for us that God would bless us as we study. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the rain. Uh, a lot of us will be getting out our mowers here this week, and so we're grateful for the rain that would come down today. And uh, grateful for a chance to gather in this dry place where we can study your word and we just ask for you to minister to us through your word, minister to me through your word, and, and may my words be honoring to you and glorifying to you. God, may we trust you that our lives can be changed by the time we leave this theater. You can begin a work in us today, God, that will lead to lasting change. We trust that your word can do that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question, maybe a rhetorical question, because I can't answer, have answers from all of you, but uh, let me ask you this. What if you had the key to all of human behavior? You knew the answer to that question. Why do I do what I do? Questions like, why do I keep saying that? Or, what's my problem? Why can't I stop? Or, I know it's not right, but I just keep turning to it. And you had the answer for why everyone of the six billion plus people, why they do what they do. My guessing is you would shout it from the rooftops. If, maybe if you're a little more unholy, you might say, I'm going to market this, right? The four hidden secrets to why you do what you do or the, four, seven, the seven principles of, of uh, hidden, hidden keys to why you do what you do. But this, this fundamental question, why do we do what we do would be answered by this key, wouldn't it? Is it our upbringing? Is it our culture? Is it biological issues? Are we born that way? Let me give you a few scenarios, uh, run through some scenarios here. I'm trying to, to take this to the front door of each person in this room, okay? So kids, I'm going to pick on you first here, okay? So kids, listen up here. Eyes up here, okay? Let, let, me, let me talk to you for a minute. Imagine that you were just awarded a summer reading program award, Okay? You hear things like, good job, and you're a great, leader, a great reader, and, and way to go. Um, you're thankful for the reward and genuinely thankful for the, for the compliments. And, but as you leave the library that day, another kid bumps right into you. And in a 
instant you say, hey, why don't you look where you're going? What's wrong with you? Okay, teenagers, your turn. A teenager wakes up after an incredible homecoming dance experience. Life could not be better. The group of friends that she went with had a great time. She found the perfect dress at 40% off, and everything went just as she would have wanted. After rolling out of bed and looking at the 94 or so pictures she took on her digital camera, her mom knocks on the bedroom door. Yes, Mom? Hey, sweetie, I'm so glad you had a good time last night. I wanted to remind you that you said you'd help clean out the garage today. What? Are you kidding me? After the great time I had last night, I don't want to spend a minute in that dingy garage. I know I said I would, but come on. Those of you who are employed, after getting great reviews for the last few years, an employee builds up the courage to ask his boss for a raise. He'd been faithful in his work and has enjoyed it very much. In fact, he just emailed home and told his parents how thankful he was to have a job in this great work environment. He knocks on his boss's door and begins the appeal, only to find the boss is unable to fulfill his request but promises to look at it next quarter. The employee thanks his boss politely but turns into Mr. Hyde as he closes the door. Why did I take this job in the first place? I'm underappreciated and my skills are underutilized in this hole they call a workplace. I'm getting my resume out today and I'm going to print it on the company copier. Are there any grandparents in the room? Haven't I done enough for you and you can't do this little thing for me? She yells to her daughter over the phone. I can't believe you would treat me this way after all these years of me serving your every need. Can't you at least come visit a little more often? The doorbell rings. The neighborhood boy is selling something again. She answers the door. Oh, hello, Jim. Of course I want to buy some popcorn. As she says goodbye, she picks up the phone and says, Okay, where were we? Well, here's the key to why these four people do what they do. Are you ready for it? Here it is. This is the key for you to market, baby, right? Make your millions. Here it is. You can fill it in on the top of your note sheet if you want. I do what I do because we want what we want. I do what I do because I want what I want. Let's go back through the scenarios here and identify the want here. The good reader, what was this good uh, complimented reader wanting, right? More pleasure, more kudos, and this child ripped it from them as they bumped into them. The teenager, what was the teenager wanting? Just an easier life, right? Come on, let me revel in what happened last night. The employee, wanting recognition, wanting more money. The grandparent, acknowledgement, repayment, possibly. So today, I want to show you from the scriptures a behavioral model that is sufficient to describe why we do what we do. And this is not going to be one of those point one is, point two is, point three is types of sermons. You can tell that probably from your note sheet that you got in your bulletin. But we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, that will give us a biblical model for behavior. Now, I'll give you a little background on James. James is writing to his church that's dispersed because of persecution. Uh, and James, this, this letter, he's putting his finger on their hearts, this whole letter, uh, challenging them to consider where they are in the faith and to consider their spiritual need. And this passage is really no different. Uh, James brings down the truth stick, so to say, uh, but at the same time speaks to the lavishing grace that's within Christ. So let's look at, at James chapter 4. Let's start in verse 1 here. What causes quarrels and what causes 
fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Okay, keep your eyes on that verse for a second and, and try to reword it in your mind. How, how would you say, if you were James and you wanted to rewrite this to, in your own vernacular, look, look, look at verse 1. Don't look at me. Look at verse 1. Uh, how would you reword that? I'll give you a second. Okay, so what's this verse saying? What's the source of these fights and quarrels among you? What's the source? Where do they come from? Why are they here? Is it not this, that your passion, these passions, or, or the NIV says your desires are at war within you, that these passions and these desires cause us to behave in certain ways? These behaviors are how we think, how we act, and what we say. All right? Now, where do we get that? That defines behavior. Keep your finger in James 4 and switch over to uh, Matthew 15. Okay? How, how do we know that that's what defines behavior? This isn't just Ben's opinion here. We're going to appeal to the Scripture. Again, I said this was a sufficient scriptural definition of, of why we do what we do. So where do we get that this defines behavior? behavior. Look at Matthew 15. Uh, let's start in verse 18. Okay. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. Okay. So, we see, starting in, in a 17 there, that what defiles a person comes out of the heart. Out of, the thought, out of their heart comes first evil thoughts, right? So what, how we think. And then we have these actions, right? Murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, actions. And then things that we say, false witness and slander. And it's out of the heart that these, these behaviors come. How we think, how we act, and what we say. So what is the heart. Proverbs 23, 7 says, for, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, the New King James Version says. So out of the heart is from where our desires, our, our passions, our beliefs, our thoughts, our, our plans come from. They come from our heart. Okay? So why do we do what we do? We have to look, trail back from the behavior, the external things, and we have to trail it back to our heart. And we see all over the scripture the connection between our hearts and our behavior. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Get this. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So why do we do what we do? It's because in our hearts we want what we want. So let me take this to your front door for a minute, okay? Think of a time uh, in the last 24 hours when you were frustrated, okay? You were just upset. You were angry, all right? For some of you, you don't have to think back very far, right? Just a few minutes ago, maybe, as you were running in from the rain. Uh, For some of you more holy people, you have to go back weeks, right, the last time you were frustrated, okay? But think about that last time you were frustrated. Now, what were you wanting, Because you were frustrated because you wanted something, and you didn't get what you wanted. Okay, let me give you some examples here. 
because uh, th- this goes from the very mundane of things of life to the crises of life, right? The very mundane, let's start on that side, you know, the, the parking spot at Walmart, that you had your, your sights set on that parking spot, and then some little car came swooping and got him. Oh, that's my spot, right? Uh, get a little more deep here. Uh, someone cuts in line right in front of you at the grocery store. They do it face-to-face, so it hurts a little bit more, and you get frustrated. Get a little deeper. A friend has, has stopped returning some of your, your phone calls. A little deeper. A, a sibling in your family isn't handling family conflict well, a little deeper, your spouse doesn't respond to your request. Even deeper, you find out you have cancer. Can you connect with this? Those things frustrate you. Why were you frustrated? Because in your heart, you wanted something, and when you didn't get it, the behavior comes to life. So what are these wants? What are the things that we want in life? They popped up a little early for us here. I think those are some things that we want in life there. Underneath desires and passions. You can write that in on your notes if you'd like. But I think ease is something that we want in life. Isn't that, that's a big one for me. I want my life to be easy, right? It's not supposed to rain at 8.55 a.m. on Sunday mornings. It's not supposed to rain at 10.10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, right? Because that makes my life harder to have to walk in in the rain. I like my life to be easy. Or what about wealth? We all want a little bit more, right? One of the richest men in the world when asked, What else does he want out of life? And he says, a little bit more. We all want a little bit more wealth. Or we think about pleasure. Uh, We we demand vacations. We think we need those vacations or relationships. We want uh, a husband, a a wife, children that obey every single time we ask, uh, parents that adore us. We want these things. Now, here's the question, though. Is it wrong to have these desires? Is it wrong to want ease of life? And we could go on, right? There's lots of other desires we have, you know, the 2.4 kids, the white picket fence, we could, the American dream, right? But is it wrong to have these desires? Is it wrong to want an easy life? Um, as I say in the, the counseling workshop I teach on this, you know, I don't sleep on a bed of nails. Why? You know, because I don't, I, don't, I don't want a hard life. I don't try to force a hard life for myself. I sleep on a comfortable bed. So is it wrong to have a desire for ease? I don't think it has to necessarily be wrong. Is it wrong to want wealth well we're going to provide for our, our food and 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 uh clothing and and uh shelter things like that is it wrong to want pleasure to want healthy relationships i don't think those are necessarily wrong desires but something does go wrong with those desires doesn't it something goes horribly wrong with those desires and why is that why is that well we only have to look as far as back to james 4 Verse 2. Verse 2 is, what, what goes wrong? You desire, and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Again, it's not bad to have these desires, but, but far too often these desires become demands. I must have ease in my life. I must have wealth. I must have pleasure. I demand relationships that are healthy, and I demand a spouse today. In a sense, these desires become 
idols, the things that we worship instead of worshiping God. Now, when I say idols, I'm not talking about little wooden statues or ivory statues that we bow down to. I think idols are alive and well today, aren't they? In our hearts, we worship these things. Let's call them idols. In fact, Stuart Scott says, when we make something other than God our primary focus and goal, we are clearly engaged in idol worship. We are clearly engaged in idol worship. Uh, instead of something submitted to God, our desires become demands, things that unmet must still happen. Now, in our Sunday school classes, uh, previous to doing these workshops, we've been looking at the book of 1 John. And turn, turn to me real quick to 1 John. Look at the very last verse of 1 John. Keep going back towards the back of your Bible. You'll see the Peters and then uh, the three Johns. Okay, look at the very last part of, of 1 John. Verse 21 of, of, of chapter 5. I mean, John's tooling along here. He's, he's writing. Uh, starting in verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. We might know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God uh, and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I have to be honest with you. When I first read this, I thought, John, kind of random here, buddy. I mean, seriously? Where, where are you going with this? Kind of like the, the child that is uh, uh, telling you a story. And, you know, then Johnny came home from the store and a transformer came in and blew him up. Right? It's just kind of this random end to the story. That's kind of how I read First John. I read, John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay. Now, when he says little children, it's an endearing, loving comment. He's not condescending towards the, the, the people he's writing to. It's an enduring uh, uh, statement. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why does he say that at the end of the book? Worship of idols is the worst thing that wreaks havoc on believers today. These desires become demands, I believe, is the worst problem in God's church today. Why does John emphasize that? Because, guys, this is like fundamental. This is the worst thing you're struggling with. You're worshiping idols. Pastor Brad Bigney says that we are involved in idol worship when anything or anyone begins to capture our heart, our mind, and our affections more than God. Anything or anyone begins to capture our heart, mind, and affections more than God. See, when we worship these idols, it's an assault on the goodness of God, isn't it? Because God, I have this desire. You're not giving it to me because you know what? You're not good. God, oh, I, intellectually, I know you're good. But really, in my life, how it plays out, you're not good. So I'm going to demand that you give me this ease. I'm going to demand that you give me this. Well, I demand the 2.4 kids. I demand the white picket fence, right? And when I don't get it, I'm going to make it happen, right? I'm going to make it happen. Because look at verse 2, right? You desire and do not have, you want something, you can't get, so you're going to murder in order to get it. Because, God, you're not good. I'm going to make this happen. And so we can all say, okay, well, I've never murdered. I'm off the hook, right? To what does Christ relate murder in the Scripture? Getting angry. Because <laughs> now we're all guilty, right? Getting angry. You have heard in Matthew 5, you have heard that it's said to the people on go, do not murder and answer and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. So we, we get angry in a sinful way to get what we want. We, maybe we clam up and let it burn within us, right? 
Maybe we blow up and shout it to the rooftops how angry we are. Murder is the behavior that begins in the heart with anger. We're all guilty of this. So those aren't bad desires. When we're willing to sin to get them, that's when they become demands. That's when they become idols. So what are some of the other sins we can do to get what we want? You know, we can speak harshly to our kids to get their behavior to change. And, you know, it works for a few minutes, right? It might work for a few minutes. It's not a bad desire, but if you're willing to sin to force it to happen, it's become a demand. You, want, you don't want your spouse to see something that you've bought. Maybe you spent too much, so you manipulate your words to try to get them to see the bright side. You know, the idol could be a demand to, to keep your purchase and not to discuss this, to humble yourself before your spouse. Um, maybe you have an idol of peace in relationships. So, so you say little white lies, make yourself look good or try to appease others. Maybe your idol is image management. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Your desires become a demand, and so we'll sin in order to get it. If you look at the next sentence in uh, chapter 4, verse 2, it, it's the same type of situation, just a little bit of nuance here. You, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So now you have this desire, and you can't even get it. By sending to try to get it, you still can't get it, so you just respond in a sinful way, right? You just respond in a sinful way. Uh, you want something, you can't get it, so you respond sinfully. Um, Maybe take it to your front door here. You know, my, my finances are never going to be as high as my neighbor's, so I'm just going to blow them off when I see them. I'm not really going to engage with my neighbor. I can't get as much finances as they have, but I'm going to just blow it off. Or I'm not married right now, but God knows I want to be, so I'm going to be bitter towards my friend who is married. Or my child isn't turning out like I thought he or she would, so I'm going to stop praying for them. Bottom line, when you don't get what you want, what's on the inside comes out. Now, last time I preached, I did this illustration. I've done it a ton of times. I think half of you have already seen this, but when your, your life gets rocked, right, what comes out? When I shake this water bottle, what comes out? What's inside comes out. Now, what's inside your bottle, right? What's inside your heart? Is, is what comes out the pure water of, of, of wanting to glorify God with my life, or is this a demand, this, this, this green slime comes out that says, I demand that I get my desire. You know, it's, it's interesting as we think about this, because we have these desires, we have these passions, we can't get them, and so we behave in a way, we try to force them to happen or respond simply when they don't happen. How's this person doing at this point? Right? I mean, think about the deceitfulness of sin here. We think, oh, if I respond this way, I'm going to get what I want. And look, how's this working out for them? You get frustrated, you get angry, distressed, you get depressed. You, I mean, the litany of, of, of how bad your life keeps going, can go on and on and, and on here, all starting with, I'm going to get what I want, I'm going to get what I want. And we found out, boy, we're so far, the deceitfulness of sin, it's so deceiving. Let's go back to verse 3 here and continue to see how this works out for us. Um, you ask and do not receive, it says in verse 3 of chapter 4, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your, your passion, these idols. You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose? As the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So we ask God with wrong motives because we want what we want and james boy pulls out the truth stick here doesn't he you adulterous people 
Now think about who James is writing to. Remember what I said he was writing to? He's writing to the church. He's writing to people who have said, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I've trusted him and him alone to pay the penalty for my sin. And James calls them adulterers. This is strong language here, right? He's talking to Christians here, not to people who are, are not Christians. He's talking to those who are believers in Christ. Why does he call them adulterers? Well, let's define adultery, right? You have a marital covenant here, a marital relationship. Adultery is going outside of this marriage relationship to find pleasure. It's saying that I cannot find the pleasure that I want for my life, and I can go find it out here instead. So why does James call believers adulterers? You have a covenant relationship with God. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. He's given you purpose. He's given you joy beyond measure. And what, what James is saying is, no, you're going outside of this. You're saying, God, you're not good. You're not sovereign over my problems. I can find more pleasure outside of my relationship with you and find it over here. And so what's James call them? Adulterers. Adulterers. Going outside of your covenant relationship with God to find pleasure. Now, we do the same thing, don't we? Our desires become demands. We say, God, I'm going to make this happen. Ezekiel 14.3 calls us idolaters in our hearts with stumbling blocks before our faces. In a sense, we can't even see beyond because we have this idol in front of us. Titus 3.3 says that these idols enslave us. Ephesians 4.22 says we have deceitful desires. We are adulterers. James 4, 4 continues to say that we need not be friends with the world or we are enemies of God. If you're following along with your notes here, it says that we are enemies of God. And later on it says in verse 6 that we're opposed by God. He's talking to believers here, right? So we're not saying that you lo- they've lost their salvation. They no longer are in fellowship, uh, in a right relationship with God. It's saying that your fellowship with God is broken because of your sin. That your relationship is broken. It, it's, it's always there. You're justified always, but your, your friendship with God, your fellowship with God is broken. Your relationship is there, but your friendship, your fellowship is broken. We're like an enemy of God. Uh, verse 5, there's a little bit of, not controversy, but some, some translations translate this verse a little bit different. I actually like the Holman Christian Standard Bible's translation of this. It says, do you, do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit... He caused to live in us envies intensely. I think that fits with the context. I think the ESV Bible fits in the context too. But the, the flesh, the, the, what he's caused to live in us, the, the flesh, it envies intensely. The ESV says that the Holy Spirit envies for us as we worship our idols. I think both are appropriate. Um, but the realization here is the grossness of our hearts, right? That we are enemies of God. Verse 6 says we're opposed by God, but let's get to some good news, right? Are you ready for some good news here? Are you on this path? Are you seeing your desires become demands? Are you seeing sinful behavior play itself out? Are you frustrated? Are you angry by that? Do you see yourself as scripturally defined as, well, I'm being an enemy of God. I'm being opposed by God. Remember I said earlier, Pastor Brad Bigney says that we are involved in idol worship when anything or anyone begins to capture our heart, mind, and affections more than God. There is a better way. There is a better way here to set our hearts to please God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, whether you're at home at the body or the way, I make it my aim to please him. 
I have these desires, but they are fully submitted to this greater desire to please God in everything I do. In every aspect of my life, I submit these desires to the greatest desire. My greatest purpose in life is to please God. That's going to affect your behavior, isn't it? It's going to affect what you say, how you think, what you do. And what's this person's life like? And to get this point, how, how are they going to respond when your life gets rattled? What's going to come out is what's inside. Their state of being is much different, isn't it? No matter what their circumstances, their response is peace. Their response is joy. I mean, you can list the fruit of the Spirit here, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When all of these life issues come crashing down upon you, God says, Set your purpose to glorify me, to please me, and let the outward behavior reflect that and your state of being, wow, what a difference, right? What a difference this makes in our lives as we set our hearts to please him. But if we struggle with that, that's why I read it so slowly in our opening of the sermon, verse 6 of chapter 4, but he gives more grace. Praise the Lord, right? Believer, your blood should be pumping right now because he gives more grace. Are you struggling with responding in a godly way to the pressures of life coming down on you? Are you struggling with that? He gives more grace. Your sin is forgiven. You can confess your sin and you can respond in a godly way and reconcile your relationship with God. No longer an enemy, but a child of God always in that relationship but also in that friendship, in that fellowship with God as well. But he gives more grace, verse 6 says. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Skip down to verse 10 for a minute. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now get this, guys. Look at this. We please God with our hearts that makes itself uh, manifest in our behavior. We see our state of being. God says he will exalt us. To be lifted up, to be made high. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but boy, doesn't that sound better? Doesn't that sound better? Is that where you want to be? That's where I want to be. That's my prayer. That's where our church will want to be. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, A man's goal, I'm sorry, a man's God, little g, a man's God is that for which he lives, for which he is prepared to give his time, his energy, his money, that which stimulates him and rouses him, excites and enthuses him. So how do we get to this point where when we think about God, it enthuses us, it excites us, it, it, it gives us energy to want to please God. If we go back to James, being the good pastor, he gives us the instructions right here. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Four simple points here, right? A little mini sermon within a sermon. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This is a military term. Talking about full and complete submission. You think of the private at boot camp and, and that drill sergeant just says, drop and give me 20. Clean the barracks with a toothbrush. Everything is, is counted as lost. This, this private says, no, I, I have to submit fully. I'll do everything this drill sergeant says. It's a bad illustration at some point, isn't it? Because how much better do we have a loving, compassionate God who says, submit fully to me. I will give you joy. 
I will give you so much more than you can imagine. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. The second point in this mini-sermon. Resist the devil, the, the, the teacher of pride. Resist him. Number three, draw near to God. And what does that mean? Like, listen to his word. Draw near to him. When we say, God, I just can't feel your presence, well, let, let's not trust our feelings, right? Let's look at the scripture that says, God is always with us. We are in his presence all the time. Where can I go from your presence, Psalm 139 says. Draw near to him. He's there. He's very near. This should lead to repentance, right? If we submit ourselves, if we resist the devil, if we draw near to God, what's it say here? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. It lead to repentance. Purify your hearts, you devil mind. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I have a chance to repent and, and reconcile my relationship with God, reconcile my relationships with, with others. So if you look back down at your notes, which line do you find yourself dwelling in? Which line do you find yourself dwelling in? What will you do if you have found that you have an idol of ease or an idol of, of wealth or an idol in your relationships? Well, let me encourage you to do this first. Radically amputate anything in your life that has a help to you to worship that idol. Let me give you an example. Uh, the movie Fireproof. Uh, some of you have seen that movie. Um, Kirk Cameron's in this movie, and he's struggling with viewing things on the Internet so he, that are they're un, unholy. So he, uh, he takes his computer out to his front lawn, gets out a baseball bat, and he just goes to town on it. Remember that scene in that movie? If you've seen it, and then the neighbor looks at him, and, what's wrong with you, buddy? And, um, what a great picture of radical amputation. There are some of you in this room that are struggling with that very thing. Now, am I saying you have to get a baseball bat out when you get home tonight? No. Okay. But here's what I'm saying. Remove any possibility of you being able to view those things. Get a password on that computer that you don't know. Put that computer in a public place in your house and only view that screen when there's someone else in that room with you. What are we waiting for, right? What are we waiting Oh, I'm just going to pull myself up and I'm going to do this and this. I failed 400 times before, but this time I'm going to do it. Radically amputate those things out of your life that help you to worship those idols, okay? I use that as one illustration. There are many more things, right, that we could radically amputate out of our lives that, that help us. Now, it's still our decision, right? I'm not going to blame an inanimate object. I'm not going to blame a computer for my struggle, right? I'm still responsible for that. But that leads to my second encouragement to you is to confess the sin to someone. If you find yourself struggling with an idol, confess that to someone. I'm going to take this really to your front door. I mean, like you've opened the door and I'm standing right there with you, okay? Confess that to someone before you leave this building today. What are you waiting for, right? If your goal in life is to please God, is to worship him, confess that idol to someone today, this morning, before you leave Five Points, Washington. Now, I know, I realize, you've got the three kids in tow. Honey, I need to tell you something. Okay, I'm not saying that, okay? But as you stand up here uh, when we close, can, can you say, honey, I need to talk to you later about that, that sermon hit something. James chapter 4 hit something. Can we talk later? You can do that, right? We all could do that. Or maybe if you're, and I encourage you, if you are married, make your spouse that person. Make your spouse that person. That's a whole other sermon. Uh, but if you're not married, find somebody. Somebody, somebody invited you to come to church here, right? 
just tell, hey, I, I need to talk to you a little bit more about that sermon. I think I have an idol in my life. We can all do that. What are we waiting for? We can do that today and get on that path of pleasing God and glorifying him and find joy. What are we waiting for? We can look to the scripture. We can radically amputate. We can confess to, to others. We can confess to God, obviously, by looking at his word and, and find nourishment for our souls as we you know, we just, oh, you should have a daily quiet time, right? Check, I had a daily quiet time. But why do we do that? So we can nourish our souls with this, this word to, to help us to, to please God. I think we can be real with others, to have real accountability with others. Do we want real change in our lives? We need to get to the heart. Ed Welch says, change goes through the heart and continues on to the gospel. As we do this, we remember the gospel, that he gives more grace. We are forgiven. We're given the grace to change. Praise the Lord. My hope today is that your view of the scripture has been raised, as you see a sufficient model for all of human behavior. My hope is that it points you to God, and your view of God has been raised, ultimately. And that as we see our behavior, as we put our behavior up to the light of scripture, we see these dashboard lights coming on in our hearts to say, check it soon, check it soon, right? But not just in a few days or in a few weeks, check it today, check our hearts. So we, we don't want to, to blame our parents for why we do what we do or the circumstances in our lives or our upbringing. Well, let's set our hearts to please God. We need to fess up to our sin and, and move forward by his power, and by his grace. So church, let me ask you, what are you wanting? Let's band together and say, let's set our hearts to please God. Let me pray and ask for, for God's grace for us to be able to do that together. God, I have idols in my life. I desire things that are, uh, have become demands. Lord, even as I preach this sermon, I can... Uh, say I want to please you, but as I step off the stage, I know my heart is prone to wander. I can make a desire, a demand right away. So Lord, help me, help us to trust you for the grace to, to please you in everything that we do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.